0: Tonight we look at the very first sermon ever preached in the early church. And the interesting thing is that Peter is the one preaching it. And why that's interesting is because Peter, as you know, before this point was a scaredy cat. He had a lot of zeal, but when it got right down to the wire of confessing Jesus before people, he was chicken. He had chickenitis. He was scared when that servant girl in the garden said, aren't you one of his disciples also? And he said, no, I don't know who he is. And now we see Peter standing up in front of not a servant girl, but thousands of Jewish brothers, men and women, who up to this point are very hostile toward the gospel. In the crowd are no doubt the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the very enemies of Jesus Christ, probably a few Roman soldiers in and around the Temple Mount to keep the peace so that no quell or riot occurs. And now we see Peter standing up giving a sermon. And we kind of take a double take because of Peter's failure in the past. Now, remember, Peter really wanted to give a verbal testimony for his faith. In fact, he swore to Jesus that although all the other disciples would fail him, that Jesus, you can count on me. I'm the old rock. Remember, you named me that, Lord. I'm, I'm the rock. I'm solid. I won't fail you. I'll die for you. And at one point, Jesus had to pause and say, Peter, I'm going to give you some insight into spiritual things. Satan has been asking for you lately that he could sift you like wheat. Boy, that's kind of frightening, isn't it? Imagine if the Lord would speak to you and in the privacy of your own conversation with the Lord, He would let you know, Satan has been bringing your name up before me. He wants you. He wants to rip you off. And then imagine how relieved Peter felt when Jesus said, but Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And Peter went, And yet he denied the Lord three times. His faith did not fail, but certainly his devotion failed the Lord for a period of time. But Jesus, when He warned Peter, said, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you are restored, strengthen your brethren. Then we read in John chapter 21 after the resurrection, Jesus meets Peter and He says, Peter, do you love me? Three times. He says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, and tend my sheep. And at that moment, Peter is recommissioned back into the ministry. Although he has failed, it doesn't mean that God wiped him out of the useful list in the ministry. He didn't say, I'm sorry, Bubba, you failed. One strike, three strikes in this case, and you're out. But he elevated him again to a place of serving him. Now in Acts chapter 2, we see this occurring where He is strengthening His brothers and He's preaching the Gospel. We remember what happened. It was Pentecost. A mighty rushing wind swept through the place where they were at. Tongues as a fire rested upon these people in the upper room. They spoke with tongues. A crowd gathered. They said, what's going on? These people are nuts. But it says, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Peter stands up before this crowd, no longer scared, no longer bashful Peter, but he's bold, he's gutsy, He gives a very organized message. He enunciates it perfectly. He brings it to a conclusion. And results happen. He becomes, as a friend of mine puts it, a lean, mean preaching machine. And look over at verse 37. When they heard this, now this is after his message, they were cut to the heart. That is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, the theme of Peter's message is the person of Jesus Christ. If Peter were to have a sermon outline, and he does, by the way, this is very neatly outlined. And we won't get into that. That's a whole homilytic section, another big word that's really not important for us. But if you were to hear a message title, it probably would be something like, Who is Jesus Christ really? Who really is this man Jesus? That's the theme of Peter's message. It focuses on the person of Jesus. Not, in this sermon, on the things that he said. Not on the things that he did. But on who he was principally. That he was the Messiah. And Peter's whole theme is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and he is the Lord of everyone who calls upon him. And he gives proofs of it. He lays it out very neatly. Which is really the central issue of Christianity. Who is Jesus? Now, a lot of us want to bicker about what a certain text means, and we want to argue doctrine here and there. And to some degree, that's important that we know what it says. But the most important thing is the person of Jesus. I remember witnessing to a girl once, and every time I brought up Jesus to her, she wanted to argue. about Well, you know, this group over here argues with this group, and you believe differently. And I said, what are you doing with Jesus? And she'd kind of flip out at that and want to talk about the differences between teachings. But it kept coming back to her. I kept saying, what are you going to do about Jesus? And she'd go off on another tangent. What are you going to do about Jesus? Finally, she left. But that night, those words sunk into her heart. What are you going to do with Jesus? And she gave her life to Jesus. Because the central issue is the person. Jesus took His disciples aside and He said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say one of the prophets. Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Good old Peter, foot in the mouth Peter, said something right for a change. He said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Bingo, Jesus said. That's loosely paraphrased. Actually, he said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The central theme of the message, the central theme of Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ, that he died, that he rose again, and that he has a plan for us. So the central message, is who really is Jesus Christ? By the way, that's what many people miss, isn't it? Many people miss the simplicity of the gospel. It's so simple. And you've been in a situation, have you not, where you preached the simple gospel about Jesus and people want to complicate it? They want to add religious trappings to it. They want to know what they have to do beyond just believing in Jesus. It sounds so simple. We make it so complicated. We clog up the pipes. And all God wants us to do is commit our lives to the person of Jesus Christ and believe in Him. And a lot of times people even argue about what saves us. It's faith that saves us. It's repentance that saves us. Actually, none of those save us. It's Jesus who saves us. Repentance, faith are the tools merely. But it's Jesus the person who saves us. And it's important that we recognize who this Jesus was. We've told you before. I think a couple Sunday nights ago. That people go around preaching Jesus, but there are different Jesuses. You think, wait a minute. I only thought there was one. Well, Paul the Apostle said that people were running around stealing the simple gospel out of their hearts and were preaching another Jesus. Jesus. And people sometimes get confused because a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or a Christian scientist or Sun Young Moon's followers or one of the other thousands of cultists will come to their doors or they'll see them at an airport passing out flowers and literature and they'll have a conversation with them. And sometimes we'll walk away thinking, well, what's the big deal? What's so different between me and them? They talk about Jesus. They say they love Jesus. They say they know Jesus. But get down to the nitty-gritty and say, who is Jesus? Some will say He's the spirit brother of Lucifer. Some say He's Michael Archangel in the flesh. And they will define Him differently than the way the Bible clearly defines Him in the New Testament and predicted in the Old Testament. It's a different Jesus. As you know, many of the cultists, in fact, every cultist, every major cult denies that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. And what did John say in his epistle? If you deny that Jesus Christ has come in human flesh, that person is Antichrist. C.S. Lewis, a man for whom I have great respect, at least in and through his writings, some of them are a little bit difficult to read, but some of them are clear as a bell. He was a great British scholar. He's written many books that are mandatory at the college level. He wrote, after he became a Christian, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing about him, which is that I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would not be a moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make the choice. Jesus Christ is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And he had a very basic logical premise. He said, listen to the things that Jesus said about himself. All of the claims of Jesus. Now this is important because you have met a lot of people who say, look, Jesus was cool, man. He's all right. He said some neat stuff. I'm not opposed to him. He was a good moral leader. He was on the level of some of the greats, but he wasn't God. Well, all you have to do is isolate all of the texts of the claims of Jesus, the things he said about himself. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham existed, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you take all of the claims of Jesus, you come up with only two basic conclusions with those claims. And you can only have two, which are, number one, his claims were true, or number two, his claims were false. So that's easy. Those are the only two logical conclusions. When a person says something, there's only two conclusions, either right or wrong. Okay, let's suppose he's wrong. Just for the sake of supposing it. If he made those claims about himself and he's wrong, again, only two basic conclusions. Either he cognitively was wrong, he knew he was wrong when he spoke them, or he didn't know he was wrong when he spoke them. There are only two conclusions you can come up with when a person makes an assertion. He's right or wrong. If he's wrong, he either knew he was wrong or didn't know he was wrong. Okay, let's suppose... He said all of these things, and he knew he was wrong. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And he knew they were wrong while he spoke them. What does it make him? A liar. Not a moral prophet and a teacher. A diabolical liar. Especially when he told people to leave everything they had and follow him based on those claims. Let's assume for a minute he didn't know they were wrong. And he really believed that they were the truth about himself, but he was wrong. That makes him nuts. Imagine if President Bush got on national TV after speaking about Noriega the other night. And right after he spoke about Noriega being captured, he said, By the way, I and the Father in heaven, God, are one. And I am the only way in truth and life to get... No one can get to God except He comes through me, the present. Men in nice white coats would come on the air and pick Him up and lock Him up real quick. That's called megalomania. A mental disease that makes you think that you're something a lot bigger than you are. You don't make those claims unless you are A liar, nuts, or telling the truth. And that's the other alternative. Jesus knew he was right. He indeed was right. And he is the son of God, God in human flesh. Those are his claims. But no nonsense about being good guy, moral leader, but nothing more. Jesus, as C.S. Lewis points out beautifully, doesn't leave that open to us. And so Peter now is facing the Jewish nation. Jesus is crucified. He's risen from the dead. The disciples watched him ascend from the Mount of Olives into heaven. And now Peter, after this whole day of Pentecost, gets up and he preaches the gospel. And notice in verse 14, Peter standing up with the eleven. Very different from the way the rabbis would approach a group. Rabbis never stood. They would sit because a teacher in the Old and New Testament would address the disciples sitting down, not standing up. But Jesus said, don't be like the rabbis. Don't call them father. Don't call any man rabbi. Don't be like the Pharisees. And Jesus taught them what they have heard in secret to herald or proclaim. And anytime someone would broadcast news through the town, they would be called a herald. They didn't have the kind of U.S. A-to-day newspapers or world news tonight like we have. They had people going through the town proclaiming things. And so... Here they stand to proclaim the gospel. And they raised said he raised up his voice and said, or literally he enunciated his message clearly. He enunciated it clearly. And he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine o'clock in the morning. People don't get inebriated in Jerusalem at between 6 and 9. This is not happy hour. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, right away, I want you to just pick up on something. And for, for this reason, I love the old King James rendering a lot better. They said, what meaneth this? In the previous verse, when they heard these people speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit poured out, they said, what meaneth this? And Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. What is this? This is that spoken of right here in the Bible. I draw your attention to that because Peter thought it necessary right at the beginning to qualify every experience that the church was having with the Bible. He just didn't say, well, you know, this is just something we got together and decided to do. This is something I believe is of God. And he said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he had a scriptural basis for the activity that the church was performing. That is very important. We must always, always have a solid scriptural basis for any time we do anything. And real personally, I'm not interested in any kind of experience that a person would tell me about, and there's a lot of them that Christians say they have, that cannot be backed up by the scripture. Well, you're just not open to it. Well, show it to me in the Bible clearly or I'm not, I am going to reject it. Because I haven't even experienced all that is written here, let alone going outside of the scripture to experience an extra scriptural experience. I don't have time to experience stuff that's not written. I'm having trouble doing what is written. And so unless you can say and validate everything you do according to the Scripture, then it should be rejected, I believe. This is that, or this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. You see, if you say, the basis for my belief is because a couple years ago I had this wild experience I want to tell you about. Then... You are making the basis or the foundation of your authority your experience. If you do that, you have to recognize something, that for you to be objective, you have to be open to everybody's experiences. You can't say, this is valid simply because I experienced it. Then you turn into the classic humanistic existentialist. What's valid for you is fine for you. What's valid for me is fine for me. Truth is truth for you, but not truth for me. Let everybody experience his own truth. You have then no universal basis for truth. And everybody does what is right in his own eyes, which is what you're taught in all the schools today. And if you say, but I experienced this. Show it to me in the Bible. Well, I can't, but it's real then you have to be open to the experience of the Mormon who has an experience of his heart pounding and bearing witness that the Book of Mormon is really the Scripture and he's had this warming experience he can tell you about or the Baha'i or the Zen Buddhist who also has an experience. You always need to say, this is that which was spoken of in the Scripture and be able to know and to be able to validate it by the Word of God. Also, note how adept Peter is in the scripture. Look at just visually. Verses 17 through 21, he's quoting out of the book of Joel. He's not reading it, he's quoting it. You know what intrigues me about this is that this guy knew his Bible. He quotes three times in the sermon. Joel, Psalm 16, and another Psalm up there in verse 35. Gives application, quotes the Psalm, and quotes the thing perfectly. And you know what? He never graduated from seminary. Isn't that wonderful? Didn't have an MDiv. Didn't have a Master of Theology degree. That guy's a fisherman. And he was barely a follower of Jesus for three and a half years. Barely. And most of the time, he didn't know what was going on during that time. Now, this guy seems different. Where did he get all the training? Well says up in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, they spoke in tongues, but more than that, Peter preaches the dynamic message, filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, that's where your training really comes in, is being prepared by God. You want to be used by God? Then be prepared by God. Let God prepare your heart. And I believe that a person who soaks himself or herself in the Scripture, and you know what? There's not many people who do that. There's not many Christians who really devote themselves to a daily soaking in the Bible where they're determined to understand what this book says, its theme, its content, its context. Very few people who apply themselves to memorizing it like Peter memorized it so he could pull it out when he needed it and apply it to his life. Very many who are content to stay weak. And when you're content to stay weak, you stay weak. For Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. Many of us casually snack after righteousness. Not hunger and thirst. Well, I need a little bit here. I'm feeling guilty today, so I need a little bit there. Well, then you'll be a little peewee believer. If you want to grow, you want to be used, soak yourself in the Scripture. Let it be the book you read more than any other book. Now, I know you go to school and you have to go to college, some of you, and learn those things. And it doesn't mean you throw away all all your books and just read the Bible all day because you'll flunk if you do. But give attention to the things of the Spirit. Prepare your heart. Steady to show yourself approved, Paul said. A workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we see Peter, this blundering fisherman, Filled with the Holy Spirit. Not blundering anymore, but being used by God. Now, he quotes Joel. He quotes a prophecy out of Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Part of that is fulfilled. Part of that is not. The part that is fulfilled, Peter said, is the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. The part that is not fulfilled is what he says in verse 20 and 21. The signs of destruction in the heavens that speak about the very last times. That has not been fulfilled. He's speaking of the day of the Lord that has not yet come. Now there's a phrase here, and I want to clear this up because I know that there's a lot of questions about it, and it's time we just clear it up. Notice it says, It shall come to pass, verse 17, In the last days, says God. That phrase, the last days, is something we should consider. What does it mean, the last days? you hear Christians no doubt say, we're in the last days. And you might ask the question, well, how do you know that? I mean, did someone come along in 1950 and say, "Hang, it's the last days. And start to tell people that? Actually, now this might throw you a bit, but the last days began... With the first coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, 2,000 years ago, that's when it started. Because it was the final chapter. It's been a long chapter. But it's been the, it is the opening of the final chapter of the history of the world. The messianic era, where Jesus comes and establishes the church, and then will eventually come back for the church, but the day of the Lord, or the last days, excuse me, began 2,000 years ago. For it says in the book of Hebrews, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His own dear Son, whom He made the heir of all things and through whom also He made the world. It's Hebrews 1. These are the last days. Listen to what John says in his epistle in First John. Little children... It is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. You think, okay, if it is the last hour, it's the last time, and he said that 2,000 years ago, what's the big deal about saying the Lord's going to come back today? Well it is predicted in the scripture that at the end of that present age jesus said it would be marked by many signs one of the signs is spiritual apostasy which peter and paul also spoke about for paul said or yeah paul said but know this in the last days pointing to the future perilous times will come and in another place he says in the last days many people will depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. So, the days or the last days began 2,000 years ago. But they're also referring at the tail end of those things to a time before the second coming of the Lord and before the rapture of the church when there would be a spiritual falling away. A declension. People would fall away from the faith And that would actually usher in what is called the day of the Lord. Now, let me clear up something. The Jews in the Old Testament believed that you could divide time up into two sections. Real easy. The present age and the age to come. That's how they defined it. The present age is the wicked age in which we live. The age to come is the kingdom age when the Messiah will reign From Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the world will be peaceful. Everybody will be hunky-dory. No taxes, no wars. It'll be awesome. That's the age to come. Sandwiched in between the present age, which is a period of time, and the future age, which is another period of time, is a process called the Day of the Lord, which according to the Bible, and thus according to Jewish belief, was a terrible time of judgment where the earth would be shaken at its very foundations. That's called the day of the Lord. And it's not just 24 hours. It's a process of time. We're in the last days, but soon coming at the end of that will be called the day of the Lord. Listen to some of these scriptures. Isaiah. For the day of the Lord, Isaiah 2, shall come upon everything, proud and lofty upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Wail, because the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, they will be afraid. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and He will destroy sinners from it. God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Pretty awesome day, isn't it? Amos chapter 5, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. New Testament, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And then again, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned out. When Peter stands up on Pentecost and says, This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit in the last days. He's speaking of something that started then when Jesus came. Will last throughout history. Will eventually usher in the day of the Lord. Something that will happen during the great tribulation period. It says the moon will be turned into blood or the sun into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the awesome day of the Lord. That's yet future. That is not fulfilled. And Peter is not saying that this is the fulfillment of that. He is simply saying that God promised the Holy Spirit and He's here. And that Holy Spirit's going to last all the way through the church age into the tribulation. Or at least up until it. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved now the fulfillment of the day of the Lord will be during the great tribulation period you can read about it in Revelation pretty awesome stuff that goes on question what is keeping the day of the Lord from happening now that awesome period of judgment what's keeping God from doing it you know what the answer is you and me and I mean that in a good sense we are the salt of the earth we are the preservation of the earth. I want you to turn for a minute to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, or as some say, the day of the Lord, had come. For Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away, the great spiritual apostasy, where you see people falling away from the Lord, comes first, and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember when I was still with you that I told you these things? And now you know... What is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The one who is restraining is the Holy Spirit dwelling in his church. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon all of God's people now. Pour out My Spirit on all flesh, all of God's people. In the Old Testament, it was just on a few. Now the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you. And the church is the light of the world. It's the salt of the earth. And when God removes His church off the earth, the only influence of righteousness in the world that points the way to Jesus, when He removes that, then all hell will break loose, quite literally. The Antichrist will be able to move in the light, the salt is removed, we are restraining until that time. In other words, God is calling out to people to build His church. He's calling out different people saying, I want you, I want you, I want to save you, I want you to give up your mess and come to Jesus, I want to save you. And everybody that comes to Him, God saves. He's building up His body. He's saving people. There will come a time when God says, that's it, it's all over. Now the church will be removed and the rest of the world will go through the day of the Lord where God will punish the world for its wickedness, its sin, and the ultimate sin of rejecting Jesus Christ, the only solution. That is called, by the way, the rapture of the church when He comes for us. So the day of the Lord is yet future. And some of you, God has been speaking to to come to Him. People have told you about Jesus. You've attended this church. But you haven't given your life to Jesus. And some of you are content to not. You're afraid. Do you know what? What God has in store for you You've heard it before, eternal life, abundant life. You think, I don't know if I want to become a Christian. Well, you just heard me tell you what the day of the Lord's going to be like. Whatever He has in store for you, even if it was getting cancer and dying, it's a lot better than the day of the Lord, isn't it? when you don't know the Lord and you're punished for iniquity. The very worst that you'd ever experience as a Christian is far better than the best you'd have in the world. And since God is calling us out, it says that God knows the full number of people that He's called out who will accept Him. And when a certain number, when the full number of the Gentile nations have gathered in, God will remove us and God will begin... His work with the nation of Israel, with the world in judgment and so on, and wrap this thing up. So, God is patient. God is waiting. We're restraining. But God is pouring out His Spirit to some of you who have not yet accepted Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back in the rapture. That's for sure. He's coming back soon. But some of you don't know the Lord yet and He's trying to call you. And you know what? If you haven't accepted the Lord yet, do it. Because you might be the one that He's waiting for. And then we can get out of here. You say, that's an escapist attitude. No, it's not. Jesus told us to look up for our redemption draws near. He told us to look for the blessed hope. I'm not looking for the tribulation. That's no blessed hope. I am looking for the Lord to come back. And my hope is in the Lord who is coming, not just the event of the coming of the Lord. I want to see Jesus. You know what? Paul did too. He said, I know that for me to remain on this earth is far better for you, but to tell you the truth, I'd rather depart and be with Christ. It's far better. I love you guys and everything, but if I could pick between being with Jesus and being with you, I'd be with Jesus. And yet the Lord had something in store for good old Paul. He hung around a while longer, but not now. He's with them. The last days. Now. Yeah. Oh, mercy. The thrust of this, of course, is verse 21. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you know, there's a whole lot in this chapter. I figured, oh, I'll finish it up tonight. Um, that's okay, because Thursday nights is what we call our in-depth Bible study. And... Uh, We'll just kind of focus in on that and close up. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That sounds, that sounds too easy. You know, when somebody first told me the gospel, I kind of stood there stunned thinking, well, tell me the rest of it. Like, you gotta believe in Jesus. Yeah, know what? I mean, you're gonna tell me some hard religious thing to do, right? No, you just gotta believe in him. And I said, I believe in him. I remember telling that to someone the first time. I said, I believe, I've always believed in God. And he quoted James to me. He said, yeah, the devil believes and he trembles. And I said, what do you mean by that? Like anybody would. And he said, well, the Bible says so the devil believes and trembles. Now the devil isn't saved, is he? I said, no. Yet the devil believes in God. The devil isn't an idiot. The devil isn't an atheist. He believes in God. And he trembles. He's not saved. Many people like myself before believe in the head. Oh, yes, God exists. I've always believed that. I've been a good believer in God. The good Lord. I believe in the good Lord. But believe in the biblical sense means to commit to. Jesus said, whoever believes in the Lord shall be saved in chapter 3 of John. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Greek word is pistea. It means to commit to, to adhere to, or to cling to tightly. Are you doing that to the Lord? Or do you say, oh, I acknowledge in my gray matter that God exists. I believe in God. Big deal. You commit yourself to Him. Whoever does that will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord and says, God, save me, will be saved. Other than that, there is no salvation. There is no salvation. And God made it easy. He made it easy. All you have to do is say, God, save me! I want to know Jesus. I repent. Save me. And you're saved. Now, a lot of people have trouble believing that. It's so simple. And a lot of people don't do it because they think that God's going to turn them into some goofy weirdo. They have a picture that God is somebody up there who wants to steal their joy and the fun of life, who's going to turn them into some weird maniac. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, to overflowing. Hey, God didn't want to turn you into a geek. I was convinced that He did. Someone shared the Gospel with me. I thought, oh, I know what Christians are like. I know what they look like. I know what they dress like. I know the things they say. They're weird. I don't want to be one. And I found out that Jesus was a whole lot different from a whole lot of Christians. And when I gave my life to Jesus, it was the most refreshing day. I felt like a weight was lifted off of me when I finally said, I give up. I'm tired of playing the game. I'm tired of being religious. I'm calling upon Your name. Save me. The simplest thing I ever did. The best thing I ever did. I did it watching television. Billy Graham on television. It was the simplest message. You just said, Trust Jesus. Believe in God. So I said, "All right, I will. And I bowed my head and I prayed. You know what? I called on the name of the Lord, and I'm saved. said, well, how do you know you were really saved? I was there when it happened. <laughs> and the Lord Jesus is here tonight. And you're here tonight, I believe, not by accident. Most of us know the Lord, but some of us perhaps do not. And throughout the course of this study, you have felt and experienced something down deep in your heart. As if something quite isn't right with the Lord, there's not a total satisfaction. and God has been kind of gently or maybe firmly pointing His finger at you saying, come to me, lock, stock and barrel. Surrender your life. Don't get a piece of God to feel satisfied. You give me your life. You surrender everything to me and you let me remake you and give you a purpose. And if you haven't made that commitment tonight, do it. For the day of the Lord is coming, but whoever calls upon His name will be saved for eternity and from that day of wrath. Let's pray. Lord, You said that whoever believes in Jesus would not see judgment, but would pass from death into life. You said that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They would not come to the light lest they be reproved and it would be manifest that they loved and dwelt in darkness. Father, we pray tonight that those of you who are within the hearing of this voice would respond who don't yet know you, who haven't given you and surrendered to you their lives. They don't have the assurance of the hope of heaven.